Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. This is Gretchen Gagel, president of Continuum Advisory Group. I'm here today welcoming Barb Jackson, director of the Burns School of Real Estate and Construction Management at the University of Denver. Welcome, Barb. Hi, good to see you, Gretchen. Good to see you too. Um, Barb, you have had and continue to have an amazing career in the construction industry. I really consider you one of the most influential thinkers over the last three decades in our industry and somebody that's really pushing for innovation. Obviously, this podcast is called The Built Revolution for a reason. We're really interested in talking to people about revolutionary and interesting thinking in the industry. So appreciate your time today. I just wanted to start off by asking you, just where do you feel that our industry is in terms of innovation? Having looked over the last couple of decades and where you see us headed, where, where are we today as far as innovation? Well, you know, I, I refer to it as, as the innovation gap from the standpoint that we, we are an industry that's you know, has such a significant impact on everything, that everything that exists. So everything in society that exists is, is a result of what we do. I mean, there's no healthcare, there's no education, there's no housing, there's no worship, there's no nothing without us. And yet um, we, are, we are way, way behind when it comes to any kind of innovation. As a matter of fact, there's a recent uh, study uh, that I saw just probably within the last 10 days that showed the construction uh, in terms of innovation itself, it indicated it's a graphic and uh, I can't show it to you here on, on audio, but what I can tell you is that we are the bottom 3% of all industries that exist out there. We are in the bottom 3% of particularly uh, digital innovation and, and, um, uh, electronic innovation. We're at the bottom. I think there's only one group that's below us, and I don't remember what that is, but agriculture, for example, which many people might think is is towards the bottom or something like that, they're way, way, way above us. So it was very interesting to see that because I, I, I thought that, but I had not seen any numbers. And this was a worldwide, it was U.S. and worldwide, that that was an indicator of the lack of innovation. But we're not talking so much about just materials because we may have seen some innovations in materials. We're seeing, you know, a number of things in the area of even 3D printing of houses, which is sort of an extruded polymer concrete kind of a thing. So there's innovation around some product here and there, nothing like there probably could be. But when it comes to process and the way we do this business, not much there. Mm -hmm. And the reason I came to start thinking about uh, the innovation gap really occurred um, as we as we had students move through our program, our graduate students in particular, 
And, you know, we started to advertise that we have the most advanced education in the built environment. So classes like city crafting, which is about regenerative development, or uh, the class that I teach in strategic intelligence and integrated project leadership and, and how we become the leaders that the industry actually needs. So what happened was we have students going through these programs. Again, our graduate students are, you know, three to 20 year people out in the industry in terms of their experience. And they come through the program, they start taking some of that most advanced education and I started to observe some, observe something. And what that was, they got out of these classes, they graduated, they go back to their companies or they're seeking a new company to work for. And this is the comment that was made to me. The companies that we want to work for, they don't exist. And it hit me like a brick. And I started to think, and, and, and I, I started to ask them what they mean by it. And they started to rattle off idea after idea after idea of new and different ways to do this business, better ways to do this business, more importantly, smarter ways to do this business. And they would share it with the companies they work for, or they would share the information with, with companies that they wanted to work for or that they work for. And they said, there's not much listening for it. It's like, it's interesting, but that's not what we do. And that was over and over again. So that's really when I first started thinking about this innovation gap and that it's, it's not so much around product. That I mean, we can either do more of that or not do more of that. It really is about the thinking, the process, the business model. That's where there seems to be a, a serious lack of innovation. Why do, you, why do you think that is that we lack this ability to innovate when it comes to process and thinking and business model? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a vicious circle. And one of the things I've done over the last several months is I really started looking at, for example, different web pages of contractors. And what I noticed is they pretty much all stay, say the same thing. You know, we're going to deliver your project on time. We're going to deliver it on budget. It's going to be high quality and we're going to do it safely. No project too big, no project right. too small. Right. No project too big. You're right. But they're all, everyone is the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to distinguish one contractor from another contractor, and, and some people, you know, ask me to help them find a differentiator for themselves. And it's hard because that's all you keep seeing the same thing over and over again. But then what I realized is that the, the problem isn't just with the contractor side. The reason we're lacking innovation isn't just because of the contractor side or the subcontractor side. It's also because of the client and the owner side. Mm -hmm. So this is the vicious circle. The reason that the only thing you see on these websites so often um, is, you know, quality and meeting the schedule and meeting the budget and safe is because the contractor perspective is that's all the client is interested in. Mm -hmm. So if that's all the client is interested in, that's all we're going to share with them. And, and we're going to compete on that basis because that's all they're interested in anyway. Then I started interviewing owners as well. And their complaint is a lack of innovation mm -hmm. on the contractor side. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
well, if you're if, if that's all you keep saying is, but your price is too high or I got to have it faster, then that's what they're going to keep giving you. But we'll do it faster and we'll do it cheaper. And we're in this vicious circle of the expectation, like the, the expectation is X. And so we deliver X. And then there's a complaint that's all you deliver is X. And it, it's just the, this vicious circle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to say it any other way, but it's kind of like we'll rise to the low expectations that are given to us. And as long as those expectations are low Mm -hmm. in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. then that's what's going to be offered up. So that's what I mean when I say it's not just a contractor issue. It really is a client issue. Mm -hmm. But if the client says, I don't think we can get anything more from them and they don't ask for anything more, then you're not going to get it in the first place. Yeah. We actually were doing a study with the Construction Industry Institute called Order Takers or Value Creators, where we studied owners. And one owner made a very interesting comment, a pharmaceutical company, that when they tried to take innovative ideas to their business client internally, the business client said, nope, I I don't want to risk it on my project. You try that on, you go try that on somebody else's project, but I need a tried and true process for delivering this capital project and I don't want more risk. And I think some of it does come down to that not wanting to risk it on my project. Yeah. And it's not just uh, at the project level. It's also at the company level. Uh, Years ago, I was uh, interviewing a CEO of a construction company for a book I was writing on design build. And I remember speaking with that CEO and he was he, at that time and I still think today one of the most progressive thinkers in construction and as he challenged his own firm his own employees to become more innovative this is what happened the more innovative his individual employees became the more he started to recognize the risk that's inherent in being innovative mm-hmm. and he's at the point in his career where, you know, he's close to retirement and all of a sudden he started thinking about, wait a minute, I'm going to let all of this go forward, which could actually, my future could be at risk then for, you know, my retirement and all the perks and benefits that go along with that. And he said, so as I charge them to be more innovative and they became more innovative, I started putting on the brakes. Mm -hmm. And he said to where I had to look in the mirror and say, Am I willing to risk, not just at the project level, but at a company level, at my own future level? Am I willing to risk at that level such that we can be innovative? Mm -hmm. And he said, I put on the brakes. So there's a human component to it at the project level. And we measure everything by the project in construction. And it's one of, you asked me why, why we have a lack of innovation. One of the reasons we have a lack of innovation is because we look at everything at a project by project by project from, from that perspective, mm-hmm. instead of the bigger picture. Uh, you know, everything I do, I always look at it from an industry perspective, the whole construction industry perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have the luxury to do that because I'm not sitting here as a CEO of a company. I'm sitting here as sort of a CEO as an educational program to develop the next generation of leadership for this industry. Mm-hmm. So that gives me a little different perspective and I can influence differently. But again, if I were CEO of an individual company at this time, which I've been in the past, 
would I be as willing to do it? I happen to believe I would be. <laughs> you know, no. I gut, believe it too. Yeah, no guts, no glory is right. the way I, I live my life. But the thing is, is that I think there's multiple reasons why there's a lack of it. But here's the big challenge for us. You you got to understand that these these young people that I'm talking about, they're not young like 21. They're young like 35 and 33 and 30 and maybe even 40. And they just there has got to be more to this business than what they're seeing at this moment in time. And I've said for decades that if we don't transform this industry, there won't be anybody available who wants to enter it, that wants to get into it in the first place. And so they will either, these younger people will either transform it or they'll get out of it altogether. And I, I, believe, I believe that for two, three decades. And I see it more and more happening I speak with companies who are telling me they're rising individuals up in their ranks uh, to the level of stepping on to that executive leadership ladder and they leave. And in some cases, a couple of those about to step on the ladder said to me that for the past three, four, five years, they've been telling their executive leadership that if something doesn't change, that if we don't, don't start doing this business from a smarter perspective, that they're going to leave. So they've announced that they will leave. And then sure enough, when they get them onto that ladder, they say, no, thank you. We're moving on to something else. Mm -hmm. And it's a stunned reaction. Like what happened when so many of these individuals are telling these companies, mm -hmm. but I feel Gretchen that there's, you know, there's, you, you can't take, it's so hard to turn the big ship, right? We all know that. And I keep thinking, and this is something that we're leading to here at the Burn School, uh, is to create a new educational infrastructure that, that we create a network in which we might be able to allow for individuals after they graduate from a program, and even individuals coming from companies to come into this environment, almost like an incubator or a guild model or something like that. But the purpose of it is to generate or ignite innovation. And that's what I'm seeing. If, if what the, the individuals are saying, the companies we want to work for don't exist and it's around the area of innovation or lack of innovation, what are we going to do in between? So what I'm looking at is what are we going to do in between? Right. And I think um, we've come up with an idea that we hope, we hope to launch in um, probably within 12 to 18 months, something like that. But um, you know, we've got different names for it, but it's, it's really all around this notion of the sparks. So tell me about the sparks. Okay. Well, I think it's a great name and there's a leadership perspective out there or a leadership group of folks that I refer to as the sparks. And it, it has nothing to do with their age because we can find sparks at 25. We can find sparks at 35. We can find sparks at 55 and 75 years of age. What a spark is, is an individual who's sort of that little poke in your side, that individual that keeps asking the question of why can't we do it? And uh, what if we tried this? And those individuals that are in every single company out there. And the problem is, instead of igniting that spark, what we do is we extinguish it. Instead of fanning the flame to have whatever ideas they might put out there be expanded, we do just the opposite. We try to shut it down. And so I first 
heard the term, saw the term when I read a book actually called Spark. And it just really uh, set me on a path to try to identify individuals who are not satisfied with the status quo. And um, when you find those individuals who sometimes do leave these companies, they get, in some cases, they get sort of to the peak of their curiosity, but they've been put down and shut down and just do what we need. And you ask too many questions and all of these things to the point where they just end up leaving. So what a spark is to me is that that individual, regardless of age, who just keeps poking, who just keeps being that thorn in the side of the industry as a whole, mm-hmm. not satisfied with the, with the status quo. And it's a leadership. It, it's actually what I call, you know, leadership at any level. It, it's not about, you know, leadership is not about a position. It's about a responsibility. And these are individuals who feel responsible for moving things forward, Mm -hmm. for making improvements, for pursuing excellence. Those individuals are the sparks. Yeah. And they exist in every organization. It's interesting. I just read a book called Originals by Adam Grant. I've read it. It's an amazing book about, this is what I think you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend it to our listeners about those individuals that many times they're labeled as disruptors in school and um, et cetera, what can leaders do to promote spark? So we've Mm -hmm. talked about, they get shut down. They, you know, and I've heard this happen. What can leaders do to create an environment that is fertile ground for the sparks in the organization? Well, you know, I think, I think for one thing, I've always thought that, those individuals within a company, you know, they, there's the usual work, you know, we have to get the work done, we have to deliver the projects, we have to do the estimating and the scheduling, all of those usual uh, tasks that are required being in this business. But there is way, I think, I believe there are ways that leaders can create an environment in which these sparks have an opportunity to engage. And there's things like um, I know of companies who have created sort of these incentive programs and they give what they call release time. Well, release time is we're going to give you one Friday out of every month to just spend that eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours or whatever you want uh, to actually work on an idea. Now, I know probably a handful of companies who've tried some version of that. And in some cases, there's been rewards at the end of that. Not only did you get the release time to work on a good idea, but you know, if the idea gets implemented in some form or fashion, then there's even more reward for it. The problem is that process, I've not seen one that's lasted for the long term. It's usually a very short term. It could be one, two, three, five years even. But somewhere along the way, and this is, this is part of what I'm trying to look at now is why does it lose momentum? And it loses momentum. That's why I say this is a project by project by project by project or project to project uh, business. And what that means is when things get really busy, everything else falls by the wayside. There's not an investment in the notion of innovation. There's not an investment in the notion, quite frankly, of even leadership or work you've done so much around culture. There's not, a, there's not the idea that working on culture is part of the work of the institution or the organization or the association. 
it's it's kind of like it's just there there that we don't have any say or any control or any influence over and it's not true i mean innovation we can have influence over culture we can have influence over leadership we can have influence over and and i just i don't think we've created it we don't have an environment in construction it's an urgent you know put out the fires kind of a culture and environment and that's what it is and it's hard to get past that when everything is driven again back to those web pages everything's driven by is it on schedule is it on budget is it safe and is it high quality those seem to be the only drivers and so when i said it's a vicious circle if those are the only demands that a client gives us that's the only thing we deliver and then we turn around and it's the only thing they ask for it's what we deliver I truly believe that there are clients who who do want more, not every client. But there are clients who do want more that what they're up to is something bigger than just delivering the project. They are interested in the impact that that product will have on community, on neighborhood, on, um, again, sort of the environment as a whole, either socially or economically or environmentally. There are now clients who know and understand that if they can provide more than just the product, that that will actually give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, it's interesting. You and I have been working on some um, some additional research with the Construction Industry Institute, and I think this is a really exciting time for the industry because I think there's some level of dissatisfaction mm-hmm. that we're, we're reaching some momentum. And one of the outputs of this research that you and I did and Barb leading these um, meetings with industry leaders in, in uh, Houston and Detroit and the Bay Area, the output of that being the OS 2.0 manifesto, of thinking like, wow, we need to cut 30% of the cost or 50% of the time out of construction, that there's some leapfrog innovation. So do you see that people, there, there's a kind of an uplifting of this feeling of dissatisfaction that might be a tipping point for us to go uh, drive more innovation? Yeah. And this this is when I talk about, we, we either need, you know, these younger people, not just younger, I'm going to, that's why I refer to them as the sparks. Spark can be any age, but individuals now are at a point where they need things to change or they're going to leave this industry as a whole. And I see more and more of that. So the answer is yes to your question that I notice people are no longer willing to put in 40 or 50 years waiting for something to change. They might give it 10 they might get it at 15, but they're not going to give it that 30, 40, 50 years that we used to do. And we used to kind of put up with things not changing, but that's no longer the case. And that's so obvious to me working with, again, graduate students, because they come in as 35 year olds. They come in as 33 year olds. They're not kids. They've been in this business. They know what it looks like. And this is what I notice about our students in particular, two characteristics. Number one, I already said that they're not, they're not satisfied with the status quo. But the other thing is they're no longer just interested in participating in this business. They want to lead it. And they understand clearly that the leaders we need are missing. Because the leadership we need today 
embraces the notion of what we deliver is much more than a product. It's much more than that. It has a tremendous influence and impact on everything around it. Um, Like I said in the beginning, there would not be any education or healthcare or manufacturing or transportation or any of that without the work we do. And I think these individuals today are understanding that the work they do has significant impact. So it's almost like, you know, we're so used to in construction measuring our performance by the results associated with budget and schedule and quality and safety. That's how we measure. That's our metrics. Those are no longer enough for the individuals coming into our business today. This is no longer enough. They also want to measure not just those results, but they want to measure the impact of those results on the environment around them. And that's what's missing for them. So yes, they're satisfied and yes, they're doing a good job. I mean, they're relatively satisfied, but for about 15 years, maybe. And I'm the one who gets some of those phone calls. I get the phone call, you know, Barb, uh, yep, just touching base. Uh, How's the project? They tell me, oh, it's going great. Yep, I love the people I work with. Oh, it's a great company and pause. But I think I'm getting out of it. And when I ask, what do you mean you're getting out of it? And they say, well, you know, we talk about change in the company we, we have meetings, we'll have retreats, we'll come up with some great ideas, but nothing ever happens after that. And again, it's that urgency of the immediate project that gets in the way of us actually moving anything forward that would help us work smarter and not just harder. Because mm-hmm. everybody knows how to work hard in this business. Right. But what we've got to get to is a place where we can actually work smarter and... Um, you know, sit back and and take a look and see what we can produce from that perspective. You brought up culture earlier, and I want to switch back to that for just a second. Um, There's a a very well-known scholar, MIT, former MIT professor, Edgar Schein, who I've gotten to know in my PhD studies on agility and, and have a lot of respect for and been able to meet with him in person. And he brought up something really interesting. I first saw in a YouTube video by him, about occupational cultures. And it struck me because being an engineer, I've talked for years, the 30 years that I've been in the industry about how we have risk beaten out of us in engineering school. You don't wanna sit in a building and wonder whether the roof is gonna cave in on you, right? There's a steel beam that works and there's a steel beam that doesn't. And so this whole concept of occupational culture, when you say the word architect, something springs to your mind. When you say engineer, something springs to your mind. So maybe that's, that's part of this whole equation that we've built up, not just an industry culture, occupational cultures, and these company cultures that are fearful of risk and put the brakes on, like yeah. that CEO that you yeah. spoke with. I, I always refer to that as label liability. <clears throat> that's sort of the label of what you are, identi- however you identify. If you identify as an architect or you identify as an engineer, you identify as a contractor, you know, that that creates its own set of limiting beliefs. Mm-hmm. And we get so embedded in it. And, and the thing is, our entire identities get tied up in it. And it's the same thing with everything from, 
you know, meeting schedules and, and meeting uh, budgets and all of that. There's, it's an identity thing. We, we, we've been so driven to things like low bid, what I call the low bid mentality, that, you know, even when you give a team the, like the co- competitive um, advantage is to those who can create the greatest value, they still go low bid because they don't under, it's like we, it's so in our DNA that that's what we've been trained to. It's got to be the cheapest, the cheapest, the cheapest. So even when a client comes along and says, no, no, I want, I want you to spend all my money I put on the table and I want you to give me the greatest value. I want you to actually optimize every dollar that I intend to invest. So I want you to focus on optimization and all of that, it, it seems risky to the contractor uh, group because they've been trained in low bid. And, and it, just watching how difficult it is to break those mental models around the traditional construction business model, it's almost painful to watch it, it because it's really difficult. People have wrapped their whole identities up into it, like an engineer who's who's, you know, risk adverse. I remember one time an engineer from a company, a, a CEO of a company, he said to me, Barb, what we need more of is creative engineers. Mm-hmm. And he said, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but he said, that's what we need. And he said, it's so hard to find it. We don't teach for it for certain, you know, we teach for risk adversity. And now I'm saying, no, I want your you're, you know, I want all your creativity. I want you to actually test the limits. I want you to go out on the limb. And it's like panic in people's eyes. So we really are a risk adverse industry all around, which led us to so much of, honestly, Gretchen, it leads to so much of the, you know, the adversarial environment because everybody's avoiding risk and wanting to shift it to someone else. Mm. And that's why the newer project delivery methods, for example, design build or integrated project delivery and integrated forms of agreement. That's why, you know, they, they're becoming more popular because we're realizing that that's at least one mechanism and where we might be able to break down some of that fear of risk and understand that if we work together, it's actually less risky. If we're fully transparent, it's less risky you know, if we collaborate and openly communicate, it's less risky, not more risky. But that is a total cultural shift mm-hmm. for this industry. Yeah. And every party within it. You know, so we've got we've got a lot of discipline bias, um, what I call again label liability, uh, how people identify in their siloed roles. Uh, there's a lot of lot of things there that just really do kind of prevent us from from really stretching out there and looking at different ways of doing just about every piece of this business, really. Mm. Your story about the CEO was very telling early where you said that he realized he was one putting on the brakes. So many of the people listening to this may think, well, I'm not part of the problem. You know, I'm part of the solution. But for those of us that are enlightened and realize, you know, that we might be part of the problem, have you run across uh, good techniques for how do how do I break out of that mold of how we've thought for 30 years in our industry? How do I think in a different way? How do I create that company that these sparks and these people want to come to work for? Well, that's a big question. And I, I don't have any pat answer for any of that. 
I just, th- this is again, where, where I come from. And I think the thing that will begin to break folks out of this, I teach or I facilitate what we call women in construction leadership bootcamp, but it, it's leadership bootcamp. It doesn't matter whether it's men or women or it's not a gender specific uh, consideration. It's the notion of, you know, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So the one thing I would say from, uh, again, a leadership perspective and, and how we begin to develop a shift in this industry is if we start to shift from what we do to why we're doing it. And that's what I mean, that these people who say there's uh, the companies we want to work for don't exist because what they're seeing is this is what this company does. But what's not there for them is a strong presence of why they're doing it. So it's that notion again is it's not the work we do and the product we deliver. It's the impact that that project has on the community, the workforce, the job development, the the educational system, the transportation, whatever it might be. That project is not about the concrete and steel. And that's what these individuals are looking for. So the leadership, when they when the leadership comes from, you know, what we're what what we do is provide environments in which children have an opportunity to excel in education. The product happens to be a school, but what we do is enhance the lives of young people. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different place to go to work for. Mm-hmm. And that's, in my view, that is the missing component. In our industry, we don't speak why we do it. Mm -hmm. We speak what we do. And we do it because that's all we think the client wants. But I swear, and I believe this, that companies who begin to speak why they do it more than what they do will indeed have a competitive strategic advantage in the marketplace if it's authentic. And that's a key because, you know, we can use anything for marketing purposes. I remember, you know, when I first got involved in design build and design build education, my students starting at, started asking construction companies that interviewed them for jobs. So the student would say, do you do design build? And the company would go, uh, sure, we do that. We can do that. And it was really so the student would maybe consider their company when they had not a clue what that was. Well, it's the same thing with integrated project delivery or anything like that. Sure, we do that. That's what I mean when I say it has to be authentic. But I truly believe that one shift, and and we we could probably watch this on a company-by-company basis because it's not going to be a wave. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a company here and a company there that we're going to see something shift when we start to see those few companies start to move in that direction. And then it might have an impact overall, but it will be noticeable. It will be truly, truly noticeable. And frankly, these individuals that are leaving some of the other companies, for example, they've hit the executive ladder and they say, no, thank you. That's what they're doing. They're stepping aside, they're finding like-minded people, and they're starting these smaller companies. And I know of a few. And it's kind of like I said, I knew it was going to happen. And in the last, honestly, five, six, seven years, I've actually seen it start to happen. 
Now it's easy to get sucked back into it, <laughs> into the, the sort of the more traditional mindset, but I, I actually have seen a bit of movement there. So when you ask the question about, do I think we're, we're, there, we're at a tipping point? I think we are, I really do. It, in your point, when people ask me, oh, you work in construction, and they kind of look at me and, you know, why do you work in construction? We build society. Yeah. Would you like to charge your cell phone? Would you like to have your baby in a hospital? Would you like to send your child? We build society. We yeah. build the infrastructure that enables everything that we do. It's a very exciting industry to be in. Yeah. Any other final thoughts you'd like to share with us? I, I really appreciate your time and and not just your time, but the thoughtful way that you work every day to positively impact our industry. It's because we care. It's full of so many genuine people that make a huge difference in the world. And, and I really appreciate the work that you put into our industry and the recognition you receive for that. Well, I, I think the last thing I would say is this, that I know that the construction industry is filled with noble, hardworking, well-intended people. And I've known that it's a dignified group of folks really are they're, they're, Again, they're committed individuals they want to go to work and do good work every day. And I think this is the thing that's kept me in this business. And, and from a leadership perspective, what I've seen over and over again, it's, it's our job as leaders in this industry to create an environment in which those people can excel. And, and trust me, as hard as this work is, they're in it because they love it. They love it. And, you know, there's so much, so, so many barriers and so many influences that make it hard and difficult. They really like to focus on doing good work for the reasons that make a difference out there in communities and neighborhoods and in business in general and so on and so forth. But there's a lot in their way. But the reason I stay in it and I keep studying it and studying it and studying it is because of those individual people and sort of it's a dignity of mankind issue for me. These are dignified, hardworking, well-intended people. And, you know, the work they do is quite magnificent and nothing, nothing in this society would exist without them. And so, again, from a leadership perspective, our job should be to create an environment in which they can excel and be recognized and appreciated. That's why I stay in it. That's totally why I stay in it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an industry that's very lucky to have you as their champion. And you are one of the most enthusiastic people that I know for our industry. The, the students that you're interacting with here at the Burn School are very lucky to have you as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Barb. Thank you, Gretchen. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.